Um, just so good to be together. We're continuing this morning in our series where we're looking at different stories in scriptures in scripture of people who have found themselves in a se- season of wilderness wandering. Calling this series Tossing and Turning, kind of you know, playing off those sleepless nights that we've all experienced of all of the reasons that we have to toss and turn, the anxiety, the uncertainty, maybe times of transition in our lives, those nights that we lie awake asking, where do we go from here and what now? I know we've all been in one of those seasons personally in our lives before, but it goes without saying that we find ourselves there as a community of faith right now as well. Where do we go from here? What now? And in our own time of wilderness journeying, as we wait for sort of our next location or our next building or our next focus to be revealed as Revolution Church, we are turning to scripture to remember the stories of people of faith who have been here before. We are not alone, but there are others who have walked this path before us, and they can offer us wisdom And I think hope and courage that as we look at each of these stories, we see how God showed up and God provided in their time of need. As we saw last week when we looked at sort of the most obvious, like when you think of wilderness journey, you think of the people of Israel after the Exodus wandering in the wilderness. And we saw that that season for them served a particular purpose. It was in preparation, receiving the law, setting them apart for what was to come to become the people of God. I pray, I hope that our season of wilderness wandering and journeying together, as God sojourns with us, as we saw last week, going before us and with us, that it will be a time that serves a particular purpose for us as well, to prepare us, to strengthen us for what is to come. So all the while in this journey, in this couple of weeks series, I'm asking you the question, the same one that Larry Stess presented to us July 30th when he taught, what kind of church do we want to be? What is God calling us to say yes to? I continued that last week and invited you to write some answers down. Keep dreaming, right? Keep, we need to dream new dreams and have new visions and, and start exploring the possibilities for us. And I invited you, what kind of church do you think God is calling us to be? What dream do you have? And y'all have shared some incredible things. Have have y'all looked back there at the wall? It's pretty incredible, some of the things that y'all have shared. Incredible answers like, we wanna be a welcoming church, open to all. We wanna be a loving church that looks like Jesus. We wanna be diverse and inclusive. Many post-its back there said active in service and ministry outside the walls of the church. Multiple ones, in fact, mentioned being outside of the walls of the church, more that were inside the walls of the church. Other things like generous and spirit-led and scriptural. Beautiful, incredible dreams that we have that maybe God is calling us to continue. So I would just say to you, keep dreaming, keep praying, keep listening to how the Spirit might be prompting you. And if you've come up with something else and you already put a post-it up there, I don't care, (laughs) put another one up there today. Throughout the next couple of weeks, if you haven't yet, there's some space back there, tons of space, that we can keep dreaming these dreams. So as I said last week, we took a look at the Israelites in the book of Exodus, the whole book almost, chapters 1 through 40, (laughs) 
and their wilderness journey, seeing how God heard their cries and called new leaders and provided a way where there was no way, and specifically provided and sustained them in the wilderness with water and food, all the while going before them and with them. So today I want to I back up a little bit in the story. I'm going to jump from where we were to Genesis. So think before Egypt, before Exodus, before plagues, before, before even the law. Well, that's after Exodus. But before, it's after the calling of Abraham, but before the covenant is made. We're going to Genesis chapter 16 to look at a story of a woman named Hagar. Anybody remember her? Yeah, know who she is? Yeah, you do? You know, good. They've been teaching you that Hebrew Bible class. They've been teaching you all about her, I hope. She's not listening anymore. (laughs) Hagar. We find her beginning in Genesis 16. She was a female Egyptian servant of Sarai. So again, before the covenant, before the renaming of Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to do my best, but I might say both names, and y'all just hang with me, okay? Because it's kind of fun. Genesis 16, they're Sarai and Abram. Genesis 17, they make the covenant with God, and they're renamed. And then we find Hagar again in Genesis 21, where we call them Abraham and Sarah. So you all know me by now and my scatterbrainedness, so you just know who I'm talking about if I call them both things. But in the call of Abram, God has already promised that he will be a great nation. Before the covenant, God has called Abram and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. That means kids. The problem is that many, many years have passed since that promise was spoken. Ten, we think, and they still don't have a child. And so Sarah offers her servant. We think of her like ladies' maid. She had sort of like full control over her servant as his, offers her servant to Abram as his wife, and Hagar conceives. Now, to our modern ears, there's so much wrong with that last sentence that I just said. But we need to know that it was not unheard of in this day, the ancient Near East, for a wife to offer her maid or her servant to bear a child in the event of her own childlessness. Okay, this was different than a situation of you might think of a harem or a concubine that a husband might have been offered. That's not this. This was specifically the maidservant of the wife to be offered as a surrogate, understanding that the child born of that servant would be considered the wife's offspring, that she would have the status of the mother. We have evidence of that, that sort of the 12 tribes of Israel that came later, right, with Rachel and Leah Jacob had children with four women, two of whom were servants of Leah and Sarah, 12 tribes of Israel. So it was a part of the custom of the day. This was, Sarah did not break any laws, is what I'm trying to say, or, or expectations or customs of the day in doing this. Only what she saw as the next move in order to produce an heir for Abram. The problem arises later, if you remember, when Hagar, after she does conceive... Sarah perceives that Hagar is, um, has changed an attitude toward her. Sarah says, she's looking on me with contempt, kind of going and complaining to Abraham. She's looking on me with contempt. 
Motherhood grants status in this patriarchal society. It's motherhood, it's, it's children that, that ensure survival, ensure the family line continues. The woman who could bear children had higher regard. The woman who could not carried shame, lost status. And so we, not, we do not know what all went down between these two women. But we do know is that there was some shift, some maybe attitude change that scholars think that maybe Hagar, because she was the one able to conceive, started thinking that she ought to have higher status as if the wife. Now some scholars say Abram actually took her as his second wife and so that she was owed maybe a higher status. We're not really sure. We're not really sure. All we know is that something happens. Sarah lays the blame at the feet of Abraham and says, how could you let this happen? You're the head of the household. She's looking on me with contempt. She's thinking, almost like she's thinking of herself more highly than she ought to. This is, I'm supposed to still be the mother of this household. And you need to deal with this. This is Abram's response to Sarai. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So it's one of those confusing exchanges. Like if she'd actually been taken as Abram's wife, then Sarah would no longer have power or control over her as an enslaved person, her lady's maid. And so it's almost like Abram's taking the passive route here going, okay, look, I, I give her back. Do with her as you see fit. Didn't mean to make you mad. And kind of takes a passive role. And so she deals harshly with her. So harshly that Hagar flees. And this is the first time we find Hagar in the wilderness. I want to pause right here before we read the scripture and just offer this disclaimer. As I was studying this week, there is so much to unearth here. There are so many questions that we can have about what was going on, what really happened between these two women. Um, it, Ishmael, we know, is the name of Hagar's son. Um, if, if she had truly been a surrogate, and that would have been considered the firstborn for these 13 years before Isaac comes along, was he really considered the solution? I mean, what was he the heir? Um, God kind of makes it clear in the next chapter, no, I'm making my covenant with Sarah and Abram and Isaac will, will become the blessing to the nations, that lineage. But there's just a lot of confusing things. A lot of sort of, um, a lot more of like cultural law that I was reading through <laughs> that I thought, wow, <laughs> we can't cover all that today. Maybe in a Bible study, but not today. We can't understand sort of the full extent of law and custom we can't even really sort of comprehend how God chooses to work through complex situations and strategies of imperfect humans to bring about his divine purposes. Because thanks be to God, that's still what he's doing today. Working through complex situations and imperfect people to bring about divine purposes. I can't unpack all of that today, but in the scope of this teaching, what I want us to focus on is wisdom from the wilderness with Hagar. Because however she ended up there, she's in a wilderness. In fact, that word in Hebrew, it says Sarai deals harshly with her. That's the same verb in Hebrew that will later be used to describe the oppression the Israelites experienced in Egypt when they were enslaved. I mean, that's making a statement here. 
It's the only line we get. We don't know specifically what happened to her, but it was brutal, so brutal that she flees. So I'm going to pick up Exodus 16. I'm going to read for us verses 7 through 16. Right after this verse, she flees. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Sound familiar? Same thing he said to Abram. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The angel of the Lord finds Hagar in the wilderness. Now we need to know there's no distinction here. Scholars believe between the, agent of the, the angel of the Lord, uh, more so understood to be a messenger of the Lord, and Yahweh. So when we see this here, an angel of the Lord appears, this is God appearing to Hagar, coming to her in her wilderness as she is fleeing, right? Fleeing everything she knows. She has no status, no resource, nothing apart from Abraham's household. She is alone in fear, hiding destitute, I mean, fleeing oppression. And the angel of the Lord finds her. God showing up in the midst of her personal suffering and wilderness. And y'all, he names her. And we didn't read the first six verses, so you might not catch this. This is the first time that she is named other than just being referred to as Sarai's servant. And actually, throughout the whole narrative, Abraham and Sarah never call her Hagar in the dialogue. They call her an enslaved person. They call her Sarai's servant. It is God who names her first. He sees her. He comes to her. He names her. And he tells her to return, to submit to Sarai. This might be kind of confusing. I mean, this is the first woman in Scripture to set herself free, <laughs> And to go. You're thinking, wait. But it's important that returning at this moment, again, God working through complex situations to bring about his divine purposes, if I can speak this morning, her returning, it seems to be that it's the next blessing that the angel gives, that it's returning, her survival is dependent at this point on returning to the house of Abraham. God says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. 
What God wants for her in this moment is for the child to be saved. And it seems the only way to accomplish that in this moment is not in the desert, unprotected, alone, but by returning to the house of Abraham. And while verse 11 could sort of sound more like a curse than a blessing, that he's going to be this wild donkey of a man and live, you know, sort of in conflict with his kinsmen, um, there, it, it's, actually, it, it's actually a blessing. Because in the book of Job, this is referred to, the, he, he's going to be strong, he's going to be free, he's going to be a warrior. This is heard in a positive light. It's celebrated actually later in the book of Job, this wild donkey of a man, kind of spirited and free. And then also later in Genesis, the rest of Abraham's family and his offspring that come later, they will be referred to as living sort of in conflict with its kinsmen. So it's like, okay. <laughs> it's a blessing. And then Hagar does something amazing, and she names God. And this is what I want you to remember and focus on. The first woman in scripture to do so, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. The word in Hebrew for the God who sees is El Roy. The God who sees me. In her wilderness, in her fear, her poverty, her vulnerability, God comes to her and sees her. Hagar, the runaway, hiding, and she feels seen. So much so that she names God, and this is recorded and passed down, that we know the God that we worship is the God who looks after us. Now, we fast forward a few chapters into Exodus 21. We know that Hagar returns to the household of Abraham. She has Ishmael. Ishmael begins to grow up in the household of Abraham. Genesis 17, God clears it up, and he comes again, and he says, Okay, listen, Sarah, you're actually going to have a child, and you're going to name him Isaac. I promise it's coming. They laugh again. I promise it's coming. And that's when God makes a covenant with Abraham and Sarah. They say, you're going to be a blessing for the nations. And in that moment, in Genesis 17, Abraham actually is like, but what about my son Ishmael? Like you can hear there's even this conflict of who's the firstborn? Who's going to be this inheritor of this blessing? Like what about my son Ishmael? And God says, I'm going to take care of Ishmael. But the promise and the blessing is going to come through Isaac. Another one of those things, okay, I want to wrestle with that a little longer this morning. But God clears it up, and God keeps his promise to both Ishmael and Isaac. And so then we find Hagar again in Exodus chapter 21. This is such a good story. I'm going to read it in, in its entirety. I just it's, wouldn't do it justice to try and summarize. Okay, this is chapter 21. And the child grew and was weaned. That's Isaac, by the way. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. There you go. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of his slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. What about my son Ishmael? He loves him. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the, when the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your head, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the last, there's one more time we'll hear about Ishmael, and it's later when Abraham dies, and he comes back and he buries him along with his brother Isaac. It's pretty incredible. There's a sense in which, as we can hear how much Abram was sort of just conflicted over, but what, what will happen to my firstborn if this inheritance and blessing goes to my second? God keeps God's promise to both. And he is still a part. In fact, in chapter 17, when they take on the covenant and the whole household is circumcised, there's special note in scripture that Ishmael at the age of 13 is circumcised right along with all of them. He's a part of this household and a part of the blessing in his own way. It's Elroy, the God who sees, who shows up again. And this, like actual, she's in the wilderness again, in the wilderness for good. She has left the household now. And it's God who sees, who allows Hagar to see the well of water to sustain them. Did y'all catch that? He opens her eyes to see. God shows up again and provides and keeps God's promises. There's a um, quote that I found from a scholar and in some of my studies that I wanted to share with you. It says this, God's acts of deliverance occur out and about in the seemingly God-forsaken corners of the world. Even among those who may be explicitly excluded from the people of God, as we might consider Ishmael to be. Here we see God at work among the outcasts, the refugees of the world, who fill our world as much as they did then. Persons of faith are to participate in their lives, to lift them up and hold them fast until the wells become available. They are also to discern where God's delivering activity may have occurred, to name these events for what they are and publicly to confess them as such to the participants into all the world. Wisdom from Hagar in the wilderness. What does she reveal to us about this God who we serve as well, the God of Israel? This is a God who sees, who knows, who provides, who keeps God's promises, but not just for the people who are in but for the people on the outskirts as well. We know that 
Abraham's offspring were blessed to be a blessing. That blessing would come later to be a blessing for all the nations. But until then, what happens to the Hagars? What happens to those displaced, mistreated, run off? Friends, we are now in the age of being the blessing for the nations. The light of Christ has come. And as one of your post-its read, we are called to be the beacon on the hill, the light shining in the darkness, being a blessing for all nations and all peoples, even now still for those that we might, consider, might not consider the people of God. Maybe those who haven't found themselves on the inside yet. Because what we need to know is that there are a lot of people throughout time and place who have resonated with Hagar's story because of their own life experience. Phyllis Tribble says this, most especially all sorts of rejected women find their stories in her. She is the faithful maid, exploited, the surrogate mother, the resident alien without legal recourse, the runaway youth, the religious fleeing from affliction, the pregnant young woman alone, the expelled wife, the divorced mother with child, the shopping bag lady carrying bread and water, the homeless woman, those relying upon handouts from the power structure, the self-effacing female whose identity shrinks, in service to others, a powerful witness of women throughout time and people throughout time who have resonated with Hagar's story because of their own personal experience. Cast out, destitute, mistreated. I think the question that Hagar poses for those in the community of faith today is how do we respond to the Hagars of our world? Do we see them? Do we know them? Can we call them by name? Or do we just refer to them in labels, in generic sort of titles? Or are we like the God that we follow, the God who became incarnated, came to us, took on flesh, to become like us, that we might become like God? Are we following this Jesus who reveals God to us to see people as well? What kind of church do we want to be? I think you are starting to name it already. The post-its in the back, ministry-driven, outside the walls of the church. Maybe my favorite one, and I think I have a, a theory on who wrote this one, have you seen it? Not lazy. Was that you? It was? It was, it was. Yeah. Not lazy. Amen. <laughs> Serving, active, loving, seeing people, knowing them, naming them. And there's another one, too, that I think summarizes it well. Post it back there. Caring for and loving any marginalized population whenever and however they present themselves to us, even when we don't expect it. He's going to claim that one. No, that wasn't. <laughs> that was too many words. <laughs> Caring for and loving any marginalized population whenever and however they present themselves to us, even when we don't expect it. 
Friends, that means we need to be looking. We need to be going. We need to be like Jesus who went and became one with, to know and to see and to love. What kind of church do we want to be? Wisdom of of Hagar in the wilderness tells me that we want to be a kind of church that takes care of our marginalized in the world. Those who are kicked out or overlooked or labeled or stereotyped or othered. Maybe specifically from the community of faith. Is that not what she was displaced and dispelled from? That takes a little bit of true confessions. To say us, as a people of God today, as followers of Jesus Christ, as the church in America, who have we dispelled and displaced that we don't even expect to try to come back in anymore? I mean, that's like, that's some sort of marginalization. And where do we find Jesus in the scriptures? A Jewish man, a rabbi, within the religious family of God's structure, we find him out in the margins going to the least and the lost and those overlooked, those who are destitute and poor without any resource. And he sees them and he names them and he touches them. And he brings to them a message of liberation and belonging and freedom unlike this world can provide. Friends, I think we want to be a kind of church that looks like that. That takes the light of Christ to the darkest of places. What kind of church do we want to be? How will we respond to the Hagars of the world? I came across this quote from the Bishop Desmond Tutu again. Every church should be able to get a letter of recommendation from the poor in their community. I think that summarizes it well. We can say all we want about what we want to do and dream and plan and vision. But if the poor in the community aren't feeling the love of the love of Christ from the people that call themselves Christian, what kind of church do we want to be? Ministry driven, not lazy, welcoming for all, caring for and loving the marginalized population, any, wherever and however they present. It, it brings my heart so much joy as your pastor to hear that, knowing that I believe that is who God is calling us to be today. And not just because it's a new dream that we've dreamt up, but it's because it's who Jesus has called us to be and that we want to be serious about doing that here. I stood back there in awe on Wednesday, actually, taking it all in. Keep dreaming these dreams. Keep following the example of Christ. Keep reading our scriptures. And we'll keep going to the wilderness each week, reading these stories, reminding ourselves that there are others who have been here before that bringing us wisdom that we need for this moment. But we serve a God who sees us and cares for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you so much that you are God who sees us, but not just sees us from afar, but comes to us, comes near us. We see hints and signs of that throughout the Hebrew scriptures 
But God, we also recognize that you are the God that came all the way to us, into our pit, into our humanity, in the birth of Jesus Christ. And we stand in awe that you love us so much that in our places of wilderness and poverty and vulnerability and fear, you do not leave us alone, but you come to us. So God, help us be the kind of church that does the same, that carries the light of Christ to people wherever they are. And we see them for who they are and we love them and we name them and we invite them to belong. Only here by the grace of Christ go I and go we. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.